Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. I had a very strange phone call, Brig. Strange? Who was it? I don't know, a man. He said to tell you before you go on with the Leffingwell matter, you ought to remember what happened in Hawaii. And then he hung up. What happened in Hawaii, Brig? What was the voice like? It was crawly. He made it sound like he knew some kind of nasty secret. Well, I've been on the front pages the past few days, bound to get some crackpot calls. Just hang up if you get any more. Are you sure you're doing the right thing about Leffingwell, Brig? Yes, darling, I'm sure. Don't worry about it. What did he mean about Hawaii? I was stationed there when I was in the army, but I don't see what that would have to do with Leffingwell. Just, just some crackpot, darling, that's all. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, coming to you from Quillette's Vacation Studios in Ogunquit, Maine, thus the background ocean sounds you may be hearing. And that clip you just heard is from the 1962 American political drama film Advise and Consent. In this famous scene, we hear from U.S. Senator Brig Anderson and his wife, played by Don Murray and Inga Swenson respectively, discussing a phone call from someone seeking to blackmail the closeted gay senator as part of a larger political intrigue. The movie was fiction, of course, based on a novel of the same name, but as my guest James Kerchick writes in his acclaimed new book, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington, the threat of that kind of phone call was very real for thousands of gay men working in Cold War-era Washington, D.C. Many didn't even get this kind of warning. They were simply fired from their jobs, often just on rumors of being quote-unquote queer. It was the ultimate form of cancel culture, as we might now call it, in a profoundly homophobic time. All of this history is richly documented in James's book, but we also talk about how much has changed since those dark days. And not just in the United States. In my native Canada, for instance, Justin Trudeau's government has been so eager to prove pro-LGBT bona fides that he expanded Pride Month into a whole Pride season, extending from June to September. And rather than investigate gay men for homosexuality as they once did, police now eagerly seek to join them in Pride parades, sometimes against the wishes of progressive activists. I spoke to James Kerchick last month over Skype. Here are excerpts from our conversation. The last time I interviewed you, I don't know if you remember this, we were in Toronto this sort of like wood-paneled University of Toronto. Yes. It was very august. I think we were both wearing cravats and smoking jackets. <laughs> it was like one of these like learned society type things. Mm. I was interviewing you about, I think it was your last book, The End of Europe, yes. which was very serious foreign policy book. What made you decide to turn your attention away from great affairs of state and more toward a historical focus on gay Washington? Well, this is also a book, I think, on great affairs of state, but in a historical context. And I've always been interested in the Cold War. Um, the more reading I did, the more I realized that there was this sort of issue lurking in the background of American politics and, and American foreign policy during the Cold War of homosexuality. And that 
being gay in a city of secrecy, in a city where secrecy is a form of power. And that is what Washington runs on. It runs on secrets, the whole notion of the security clearance. And how high does your security clearance go? That's a form of status in Washington. That being gay during this period was the worst secret you could have. It was even worse than being a communist. And to me, as a journalist, as someone who wants to find stuff out, also someone who wants to contribute something new to our understanding of history and ourselves as a people, this just seemed like a really ripe subject. When you say it was worse to be gay than to be a communist, I, I think you mentioned in the book, if you're a communist, you can renounce the Communist Party. But yeah. unless you go through a, <laughs> a successful bout of conversion therapy, uh, you can't renounce homosexuality, right? Right. No, and, and conversion therapy isn't something that existed, you know, really until the 80s or 90s even, I don't, I don't, I don't think, right? So in this period of time, there's a, a letter I discovered of a gay man who worked for LBJ. It was a man uh, that he had made a pass at, basically ratted him out to the Civil Service Commission. And he's writing a letter to this man, and he describes what it's like to be marked as a gay person in 1960s America. And he says, our society does not permit a return for people like that. That once you are marked as a homosexual, there is no return for you. And so this was a man who worked in the White House, and then the next day he was gone. Right. So there was nothing he could do to reclaim his status or reclaim his position. And so, yes, that's why I say that that the homosexual was 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 a worse thing to be than than even a communist. You organize your book by chapter according to presidential administration. It almost suggests that Washington was a different kind of gay city, depending on who was in power. I mean, I did it chronologically because I think this is really a story of uh, it, it is a story of progress. It's fitful. It's not it's not linear. But. To go from where gay people, to go from what their status was in the 1930s when the book begins to the 1990s when the book ends is an amazing transformation in public attitudes. It's a revolution in public attitudes. And so I wanted to tell it chronologically in that kind of order to show this, this idea of, of progress, which is very unpopular today to say that we've progressed in any way. It's very popular to kind of denigrate America and to say that things haven't changed, right? But on this issue, I think it really has. And you have to understand, as Americans, we really like to understand our history and read about our history by presidential administrations. That's how we define our eras, right? There's the Roosevelt era. There's the Eisenhower era. And so just in terms of writing a popular, a popular history, that seemed like the best way to, to tell it. Uh, and that's not to say that, that you know, being gay was better under certain presidents than it was under others. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like things were better under Jack Kennedy even though he was a personally very comfortable around gay people. It's not like the government policies of the Kennedy administration were significantly better for gay people than they were under Eisenhower. Obviously, Ronald Reagan is remembered as a conservative. On the other hand, and you, <laughs> you have a line here, you describe Nancy Reagan, his wife, who is straight, as far as I know. Uh, yeah. You describe Nancy Reagan as inescapably, irrepressibly gay. Yes. <laughs> can you, can you uh, what do you mean by that? Well, her public image. I mean, she was sort of a gay, a kind of gay icon. The fashion, and she was a diva, uh, and, you know, gay men love divas. And there was this kind of fascination that many gay men had with her. Not that they liked her necessarily, because she was very cold publicly towards the gay community. I mean, she didn't really lift a finger. Um, when it came to the AIDS crisis, nor did her husband, at least publicly. They, they hardly ever addressed the issue. 
But there was this kind of fascination with her as a, as a, as a fashion icon. And she had all these gay friends. I mean, I, I describe her, or I, or I quote someone describing her as the first fag hat. And there's this, there's a page in the photo inserts and it's called All the First Ladies Men. And it's just, it's just a collection of photographs of Nancy and her gay designers, hairdressers, you know, courtiers, walkers. You know, she's interviewed by Andy Warhol. She's on the cover of Interview Magazine. There's just this kind of gay aura around both Reagans, but especially around Nancy. And, you know, the Biden White House, they had a ceremony unveiling a new postage stamp with Nancy Reagan on it. And it actually raised a bunch of cackles from some gay activists because they didn't appreciate the fact that this was being done during Pride Month. So, you know, she's a she's a controversial figure in the gay community. I think I think precisely because she had all these gay friends, if she hadn't had them, if she hadn't come from this Hollywood background, um, then I think the sense of betrayal would not have been so strong. If I'm remembering this correctly, I think it was when Rock Hudson died. Yeah. You had this anecdote about how I think it might have been the president was was expressing sorrow about it, but had to edit what he said very carefully. Yes, yes. I, f- I found the original draft of the public statement that Ronald and Nancy released upon the death of Rock Hudson, who was really the first celebrity to die of AIDS in 1985. And you look at this, and it's only a couple sentences long, but it says a lot. And I have the handwritten edits of the president. So it begins, Nancy and I are profoundly saddened. He crossed out the word profoundly. Hmm. And then there's a sentence that begins, our memories will also be of his humanity. That has changed to, he will be remembered for his humanity. So it's put in the passive voice. And then this entire sentence is deleted. He was our friend and we will miss him greatly. So you can see like the deliberate care the president took to distance himself from this person who had just died of this disease. So many people in Washington are public figures. New York, in in a way, is a more anonymous city. Whereas Washington, maybe it was difficult to have a a gay cabaret or a Nance show or whatnot, simply because if you're a senator or some other public figure or a lobbyist uh, or anybody who would be recognized by a gossip columnist or a friend of a gossip columnist, you can't show up at places like that. I mean, obviously, Washington's a city of secrets, but it's also a city of political theater where yeah. there's just th- thousands of people. Did that limit the ability that, that gayness could be part of public entertainment life? Well, certainly for elected officials, you wouldn't necessarily see them in gay bars. Although I do tell the story of a man named Bob Bauman, who was a very conservative Republican congressman, who in 1980 was arrested at a very seedy gay bar called the Chesapeake House. Young men would strip on the on, on the bar, and he was arrested for soliciting sex from a 16-year-old prostitute. But what's interesting is that in the 70s and the 80s, the gay bar becomes what, in Washington, it becomes what Barney Frank, the famous gay congressman from Massachusetts, he describes it as neutral Switzerland. But he was out. He didn't come out until the late 1980s. He's talking about the early period in the 70s and the 80s. The gay bar, the gay club is like neutral Switzerland because you have all these gay people there and they would be Republicans, they'd be Democrats, they'd be liberals, they'd be conservatives. Some of them would work for corporate interests. Some of them would work for labor unions, right? And yet they all shared this same secret. And there was something called the code. And really until the 80s, when outing starts to become a tactic, when homosexuality becomes more of a partisan issue. But in the 1970s, the early 1980s, there's this, the code. And people and gay people protect one another. Gay omerta. It's a gay omerta, exactly. Um, and it's it, and it's fascinating. And it begins to break down in the 80s 
once AIDS hits, because that's when homosexuality is becoming politicized. Your people are coming out of the closet finally. And they're saying, you know what? We're coming out of the closet. You should come out of the closet. In the enemies of gay people, it's not so much the straight homophobes. It's the gay people in power who are assisting them, who are, you know, locked in their own secrets, their own chambers of, of, of secrecy. And we as a community have to come out and acknowledge who we are. And once we do that, it'll be harder for others to oppress us. Um, and that's when the code starts to break down. I should say, by the way, the New York Times gave your book a, a glowing review. Yeah. Another major newspaper, ironically, the Washington Post itself, there was um, <laughs> a guy who himself is, has written about gay history. One of his isolated criticisms was that you didn't explicitly identify FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover as gay. Is it known that he was gay? There's no evidence that he was gay. We're straight for that matter. But I'm reading this critique. It's in the second paragraph. Again, this guy's name's uh, Matthew Reimer, the reviewer. He mentions Hoover, and then it says, who Kerchik curiously avoids identifying as homosexual. Look, there, there have certainly been insinuations that he was gay, dating back to his earliest years leading the Bureau of Investigation, that the FBI was called in its early incarnation. He's written about in some places having a mince in his step. It's, it's remarked upon the New York Times... Run, runs a profile they, where they remark upon the fact that he lives with his mother, that he collects antiques, mm. which is a, a a hobby that is associated with gay men at the time, right? Oh, we know, we know. Okay, okay. So there's a kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, obviously going Confirm on. Confirm bachelor stuff, right? Yes. Um, he's a bachelor, of course. That's a huge part of this. And then the FBI goes to great lengths to quash any rumor, the spreading of any rumor that the director is a homosexual. And I tell one story. It's a group of women in 1943. They're playing bridge. It's a bridge club in northwestern Pennsylvania. And one of the women just sort of mentions casually over during conversation that Hoover is a queer. And unfortunately for her, one of the other ladies in the bridge club, her nephew is an agent of the FBI. She mentions this to him. He tells his boss. It gets kicked up the chain to headquarters in Washington. And the woman who made this remark is called into the FBI field office in Cleveland. And she's given a very stern talking to by the special agent in charge, demanding to know, where did you hear this lie, this slander about the director? And he orders her to go back and tell all the women that she made this up. She didn't know what came over her and she made it up. And she does. And this happens many, many times. I mean, I found multiple examples of this in the FBI files of you know, random private citizens having what they believe to be were private conversations, and then all of a sudden getting a knock on their door by the, by the FBI. So this was clearly something that, that the director was very you know, sensitive about and that the agents were, were, were very sensitive. Just to be clear, this is not queer in the modern idiom where it's like you have blue hair and you're non-binary. Yes, you can be, you can be exclusively heterosexual and still be a queer person. It's a fascinating development. <laughs> I lived in Washington briefly demographically, it was and remains a very black city. And Mm. most of the characters in your book are male white politicians. Yeah, the black community has its own subcultural attitudes toward homosexuality. Is is that something you had maybe you talked to your publisher about before you wrote the book? Well, I mean, this is a book about political power in Washington during the Cold War. Political power in Washington during the Cold War was almost exclusively held by white men. So, you know, there aren't that many African-Americans in the book. There are some. Uh, there aren't that many women in the book. There aren't that many lesbians in the book for the same reason. Was this the sort of thing that a woman could have her political 
career scotched if she made a pass at another woman? Like, was it well, the absolutely, same? absolutely? Look, there were there were female victims of the lavender scare, which was the gay component to the red scare. There were lesbians who lost their jobs, were hounded out of government, absolutely, but far less than men because women uh, in Washington did not have the sort of jobs, by and large, that required security clearances, and not the same not the same numbers, obviously. So they weren't subject to the same scrutiny that men were, that gay men were. Also, male sexuality was much more heavily policed and surveilled than female homosexuality, right? Gay men in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, you know, this is before the age of grinder. There's not, there's not even that many gay bars. Okay. So the only, like one of the few ways that gay men were able to socialize was, you know, meeting in public parks, public bathrooms, public, you know, public spaces. And that puts them under the eye of the police far more than lesbian. I'm not an expert on lesbian mating rituals, but I can tell you that they're not meeting each other in that sort of way in this part of the century. We're talking about George Michael stuff. Yeah. And also, you know, it was also in some sense, it was easier for lesbians to hide in the sense that, you know, two middle-aged women could live together and it would not draw the same suspicion, say, as two men living together. The, the notion of a spinster did not necessarily imply that one was a lesbian in the same way that being a bachelor would invite suspicion that one was a homosexual. So in this sense, it was easier for lesbians to hide um, than it was for, for gay men. So these are the reasons why there just aren't that many gay women or, or African-Americans in this book, because they were not the main targets uh, of this sort of oppression. And they were not in these corridors of power. They were excluded from that. By the way, we, we live in an age when everyone is expected to stay in their lane. This review, this writer presumes to lecture you about, quote, how homosexuality works. You know how homosexuality works, right? <laughs> I'm a practicing, yeah, I'm, a, I'm an avowed practicing homosexual. So I, yeah, I think I do. I heard that from a woman at my bridge club. <laughs> she, she was mentioning that. <laughs> and now a message from one of our sponsors, BetterHelp Online Therapy. So the pandemic is ending. And maybe you're one of the many people who expected that as soon as things got back to normal, you'd be feeling back to normal too. If not, it could be because you've gotten burned out without even knowing it these last few years. Symptoms can include lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, detachment or fatigue. And more generally, it can include no longer feeling as much joy or satisfaction in the things that you usually love doing, such as, I don't know, writing or podcasting. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Plus, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. So give BetterHelp a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com quillette. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. And now back to our Quillette podcast. This isn't just a book about people whose careers are ended by homophobia. In many cases, people die. Mm. And a lot of these appear to be suicides. But part of the book has a, a strong film noir 
quality. Yeah. You know, you have somebody being stabbed with a, a stiletto in, a, in an alleyway. Mm. Other people are found to have hanged themselves in, in sort of strange circumstances. How much of the stigma against homosexuality in Washington often could just lend itself to, to real violence? Well, yes. I mean, I spoke earlier, right, about how gay men would seek sexual partners. And in this, in this era, uh, it was very dangerous because you had hustlers. You, had, you would have straight men, criminals who would take advantage of gay men in these situations. You mean like extortion? Extortion or violence or rob them for money. I mean, the story you just mentioned about a man stabbed with a stiletto, that was a, a typical, unfortunately, you know, common story where uh, a, a gay man, who he's a, he was a Native American who worked at the um, Department of Indian Affairs, as it was called, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. He's at a, he's at a gay bar and these two young hustlers come up to him and basically offer him sex for money. And he leads them back to his apartment and they try to rob him. They don't want to have sex with him. They want to rob him. Um, and this was a common occurrence in America. And I guess you can't report it because- You can't they... report it. Police might record the fact that you're gay and that, and that could be used against you to destroy your career. So, you know, gay men were in this very precarious position. You, you mentioned suicide and that was, that was an unfortunately common thing too. Uh, there's a story of a, of, a, of a man who in the early days of the Eisenhower administration, after Eisenhower comes into office and the Republicans sweep Congress, basically pledging to you know clean up Washington, um, he hangs himself in his house. He's actually living with a man who was the walker for Margaret Truman. That's the term of the man who would take you know wealthy ladies out to society events. These two men lived together. It was sort of alluded to or insinuated that that they were gay at at the time, um, and there were many cases like it's an unfortunately long list. I hadn't heard of this. Uh, I, I don't think I'm pronouncing this correctly. The, the Medicine Society? Medicine Society. So tell us about that. I, I confess I've never heard oh, of it. Well, the Medicine Society is really the first sustained gay rights organization in the United States. And it's founded in Los Angeles in 1950. But the real most important chapter is the one that's founded in Washington, D.C. In August 1961, they hold their first meeting at the Hay Adams Hotel. Um, and the co-founder is a man named Frank Kameny. And he was a Harvard-trained PhD astronomer who was working for the U.S. Army when in 1957, so right at the height of the space race, he is summoned to the headquarters of the Civil Service Commission in Washington and is fired because he's gay. And what he chooses to do is revolutionary. He becomes the first gay person in this situation. Thousands have been fired by the federal government. He decides to challenge is firing. The last time I came on your podcast was to talk about the degeneration of the ACLU. Well, I'm, I have to report that in 1957, not even the ACLU would take Frank Kameny's case. Wow. A homosexual who was fired by the government was, that's how lonely he was in America, right? That not even the ACLU would take his case. So he writes his own legal briefs. He has, he has no legal training. He tries to take his case all the way up to the Supreme Court. They don't hear it. And in, in frustration and real stubborn determination, he co-founds this organization, the, the, the Manichine Society. They, they organized the first picket for gay rights outside the White House in 1965, and they organized other protests outside other government facilities. Uh, they launched letter writing campaigns, public education campaigns. Um, in 1973, Kameny plays a crucial role in convincing the American Psychiatric Association to lift or to remove, I should say, homosexuality from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. That's, that's one of the most important victories 
for gay rights in not only this country, but the world, I think, right? To get the medical community to finally admit that homosexuality is not a mental disorder, to have the imprimatur of science, right? Saying that homosexuality is just a natural variation of human existence. And Frank also plays a, a very important role in taking up the cases of government workers who are fired because of being gay and trying to get them to appeal their revocation of their security clearances. He plays a crucial role in the first case of a gay security clearance holder to be able to maintain his, his security clearance after he's discovered as being gay. That's in 1980. It's a, it's a cryptographer at the National Security Agency. Um, so Frank is really uh, an unsung hero, um, not only of American gay history, but I think of American history as well. I kind of fell down a rabbit hole reading about the history of the Mattachine Society. <laughs> the name comes from medieval French secret societies of masked men yeah. who were empowered to criticize ruling monarchs with impunity, which sounds like the gayest thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> they actually had a magazine. Um, and I'm just looking, I'm looking at one of their covers from 1959. Their cover story was Revolt of the Homosexual. Yeah. Like they were pretty in your face for early Cold they War. They were. And there was another gay magazine, One, as it was called, which was, really, which was really the first gay magazine in America. And they were deemed obscene by the government. And they had a cover story. It was entitled Homosexual Marriage with a question mark. Uh, <laughs> I, believe, I believe in 1958. And the, all the issues of that magazine were impounded. And that case was brought to the Supreme Court. And that was the first case that the Supreme Court decided involving gay rights was this obscenity charge against this, this gay magazine. Of course, there was nothing obscene about it. It was just a discussion of gay existence and from a very literary, literate, you know, educated, philosophical stance. 60 years ahead of their time, it should be said. Absolutely, absolutely. By the way, I just, I'm just going to say one more thing about this Mattachine Society. The original name that one of, one of the founders wanted to call it, this was the time of Progressive Party candidate Henry Wallace. Yes. <laughs> wanted to call it bachelors for wallace well it was actually founded by a man named harry hay who was a member of the communist party and was a supporter of henry wallace who as we know uh was actively supported by american communists and he had started yes this this affinity group for wallace called bachelors for wallace and it was basically it was basically gays gays for wallace but the madison society actually expelled harry hay uh, in the 1950s, because you know, partly because they didn't want to be associated with a, with the communists. Also, this is the McCarthy era, so there was a lot of pressure, of course, to sort of rid, rid themselves of any association with communists. The people who joined the Mattachine Society in Washington—I think it started in LA, but yeah. came, came to Washington—it was a, a kind of like career suicide mission. Like they just knew that, okay, well, this is it for me. I'm never going to get hired by government. Well, agency. the people, yeah. I mean, in the 1960s, if you were joining the Mattachine Society, look, Frank Kameny, he was—he he would have no career in government ever again. And not only in government, with any federal contractor, gays were prohibited from working for federal contractors by the executive order that Eisenhower signed. So Kameny basically had no choice. And the other early members of the group were in similar straits, right? They were perhaps not working for government. Maybe they worked in the private sector. But that first meeting of the Mattachine Society was heavily surveilled. There, the, the local police sent an undercover officer to meet with, to, to infiltrate the meeting, which was in room 120 of the Hay Adams Hotel. Uh, and the FBI got wind of this meeting and they enlisted the manager of the hotel to eavesdrop on the meeting. And he reported back to the FBI that the meeting consisted of 12 well-dressed men. All they ordered was coffee 
And the only words that he could overhear were bylaws and resolutions. <laughs> That's so hot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but Hollywood had its reckoning with the Red Scare, where the Oscars and stuff like that, they kind of apologized. And it, it's just been widely recognized that what happened to actors and directors who were accused of, of being communist sympathizers, it was a terrible thing. And there's been an effort to, to rehabilitate these people. And, you know, they're given a posthumous awards and stuff like that. Has there been any analogous effort in Washington to like, maybe a memorial is too strong, but mm. some some effort to institutionally apologize? And maybe that's difficult, because I'm guessing in a lot of cases, there's nothing in the record that says fired for being gay. It was very euphemistic, right? Well, yeah. So one of my inspirations for writing this book was that I, I actually attended a ceremony in 2009 at the Office of Personnel Management, which was the, is the successor agency to the Civil Service Commission, which was the body that was responsible for a lot of these investigations and firings. And it was a ceremony to apologize to Frank Kameny, who was still alive at the time. And First Lady Michelle Obama was there. And the director of OPM happened to be an openly gay man where he made this apology. It was a very moving ceremony. Um, I know the State Department, I believe under John Kerry, might have issued a statement um, apologizing for the purges in the 1950s. And I believe there's a bill currently in Congress that would call for something similar for the federal government to do. But no, I don't, I mean, part of the reason I wrote this book is because I don't think our country has had this sort of reckoning with what it did to uh, gay people. Um, it's certainly done done it with the Red Scare. I mean, there are multiple movies and plays and, you know, creative outputs. Uh, and, and we all learn about it in school, but we don't, we don't learn about this, what, what happened to gay people in the United States, at least. And so that's really was one of the motivations for writing this book was to was to memorialize it to tell these stories. I realize that this is is well out of the chronological range you cover in your book. But the Democratic primary going into the 2020 presidential election was historic in the sense that you had a real mainstream contender who happened to be gay, Pete Buttigieg. And, and I saw Buttigieg speak so I was in New Hampshire covering it for Quillette, and one of the biggest rallies I went to, not quite as big as Bernie Sanders, but big, I found Buttigieg to be charismatic and presidential. And then, I forget who wrote it, <laughs> there was this New Yorker article, and it basically said he's not gay enough. Like, have we come full circle where it's, it's you're allowed, not only are you allowed to be gay, but like you have to be, like you must be this gay to enter the primary? The author was associating a, a sexual orientation with a political orientation. And she was essentially saying that because he's not a radical socialist, he therefore is somehow not gay. Because to be gay is to be a revolutionary. You have to be um, antagonistic to the status quo and antagonistic to society as it is. But I didn't know that was a thing. Like, is that a longstanding cliche in progressive politics that being gay requires you to be a Trotskyist? Absolutely. I think in the same way that in progressive politics, black people or people of color, right, minorities who don't tow progressive orthodoxy are considered traitors to their race. In the same way, gay people, gay people who don't tow certain progressive orthodoxies are also condemned as traitors. So, so but this is, I guess, a personal question. Is this part of the discourse that you face, maybe on social media or maybe even uh, in your professional circles, that you're held in suspicion because you're inadequately radical in your postures? Absolutely, yes. And I would just say in general, you know, my, my book has been very positively received, as you've noted. The, the handful of, of negative criticism has come from 
some kind of self-identified queer writers who take issue with my, with my even touching this subject. Right. Clearly, the book buying public disagrees because the book debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. So I think that these people are a minority within the gay community. They're just extremely loud. Uh, and this is basically the case with many of our, of our cultural ills. We have small, a, a small group of people with radical views, but who are very bold in asserting themselves and give the impression that they're much more numerous than they really are. Toronto, and I think a lot of other cities, Boston certainly has had this, where, you know, this tension between people who want to preserve the genuinely revolutionary character of, you know, the 70s, 80s, even the 90s, uh, the politics uh, that attended yeah. the struggle against AIDS. There is a belief that a lot of good came out of it, and they're right, a lot of good did come out of it, and they want to preserve that spirit. And now, like I can just tell you, in Toronto, we have this awkward thing where big companies... They're lining up to to buy in to mm -hmm. the, the PR and marketing possibilities that come with sponsoring Pride. It's become very corporate. It's a sign of just how accepted and assimilated gay culture is in, in Toronto. But what then happens, and we had this a couple of years ago, is that you had BLM enthusiasts. They actually sat down and kind of hijacked the parade and they wouldn't get up until the organizers signed this manifesto. There's a debate about, is this going to be an act of resistance or is this going to be an act of celebration? There's been a lot of tension when it comes to the presence of police, uniformed police at pride marches. Oh, yeah. We had that in Toronto. Gay police, right? These are gay police who want to march as police officers. And I find it just sad because if you think of, if you think of the Stonewall Uprising, which is this epical moment in gay history... That was a, a riot against police abuse. These were police officers who were abusing their power. They were raiding a gay bar, arresting the patrons, which is something they did often. Uh, and this was a, an uprising against that police violence. We're now in a situation where the police are bending over backwards to show their support for the gay community. You have gay police officers who want to you know, show their pride as gay people and police officers. It seems to me this is a great thing to celebrate, right? We've gone from police arresting us and trapping us, beating us up, uh, blackmailing us, throwing us into prison because of who we are, to now where they all want to don rainbow badges. And that seems to me a wonderful transformation that we should be embracing. But of course, you know, there are other people who think the police are inherently evil and should be, you know, stopped at all costs. But again, I think we're talking about a very small portion of the LGBT community that believes this. And we know this because of polling. Polling shows that the vast majority of gay people want to allow police officers to, to show their presence at gay pride parades. Um, but again, like so many of our institutions today, right, they've been hijacked or they've been manipulated by small groups of determined radicals. Have you thought about creating like an enlightenment values liberalism float at the Washington gay parade? <laughs> You know, uh, I enjoy watching the parades from the sidelines. I'm not really much of a participant. No, but you could have 12 guys in suits sipping black coffee and talking about bylaws and regulations. Yeah. <laughs> so James Kerchick's new book is called Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. And I wish you all the best for the next uh, three and a half months of Pride season. <laughs> Thank you, John. And a happy Pride season for you as well. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? 
Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.